Good morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. I pray that's true for you, what we just sang. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start right there. Of course, I, I knew what was going to be sung. I, have, I have, don't recall singing that, but it really touches you when you think about it. That is true for you if you've put your faith in Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, as my son said at my other son's wedding as in his speech, you're in real trouble. It was kind of had a subtlety to it, but you're in real trouble. <laughs> uh, but he's right. He's real in trouble. This is for us as believers a great hope. It isn't death to die, and it really relates to what we've been studying for several weeks. It really does, doesn't it? When we think of Lazarus and we think of the resurrection, the incredible miracle that took place that we've been discussing in the aftermath of that, the discussion that Jesus had with Mary and Martha beforehand to try to get their minds on the eternal. That if you believe in me, though you die, yet you will live. That is the truth for all of us. What a beautiful Savior we have that has provided that for us. So, incredible song, very fitting for what we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into that, though, however, uh, my brother Mark and my sister-in-law Karen are visiting today. And if they talk to you and tell you stories about me, keep this in mind, they're both habitual liars. You can't... (laughs) You can't believe anything they have to say, so be careful when you listen to them. My brother's been a farmer for many years, semi-retired now, um, but also a Bible teacher. He's been teaching Sunday school for decades, and he just finished a series on Revelation, and I intend to begin one here in the fall. And He gave me his notes and some books, and I said, oh, this is great. You gave me all of your stuff. He said, oh, no, I didn't give you all my stuff. So he's also not very loving. He didn't. I got to do all this work. But anyway, welcome them if you see them after the service. Uh, We're happy to have them with us today. As we continue in John, I'd like you to turn there. You can see where we're going to begin today. We're finally hitting John chapter 12. And this is this two-part series of the aftermath of the incredible miracle that was the resurrection of Lazarus. The third of the resurrections that we know of that Christ performed Of course, there were resurrections at his resurrection around Jerusalem that is an undefined number. There may have been others, but we know of this one being extremely dynamic because there were so many people to witness it. There were so many people who saw it. There were so many people who reacted to it, as we've been looking at. And there were so many people right there who witnessed the wonder, the power, the might, and the glory of our God with their own eyes. I'd like us to just start there because you notice my title in analysis of worship. You and I should both understand that the proper reaction to what they witnessed would be unadulterated worship. And, and, and why I say that is this. You'll see a quote later on that I use from Dr. Woods that true worship is a reaction to seeing, witnessing, understanding, and processing the truth, the ultimate truth. And, and, and we, 2,000 years later, could be potentially thinking, man, it would have been so cool to see that. That would have been awesome to be there and to witness that and to be part of that. And I agree with you, it would have been. But I also would say that it's very possible that the believers 2,000 years ago would say, oh, how cool it would be to live in the age 2,000 years later where we're so close to the Lord's return and we have the full complement of God's Word in front of us and access to it. And each of us have, 
how many of these at home and your phones that you have have access to the Word of God. And they would say, how cool that would be to be able to impact your life with the Word of God each day so easily, right? And so the idea here is, and what I'd like us to get our heads wrapped around is worship. And your reaction to the truth that we challenge you each and every Sunday from this pulpit and from Sunday school, we challenge you to be in the Word of God every day. And when you do that, the proper response is pure worship. Pure worship of the Almighty God. So we're going to be here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Here's kind of what we're going to look at today, the aftermath of Lazarus, part 2. And you'll see what I have on on the screen here. We're going to see a dinner introduced. We know what dinners are. Generally, we eat at them, but we also know that they have a little bit more to them, typically, especially when they're family-oriented or with friends and, and, and there's fellowship involved. So who's involved, what it's about, the idea that we're going to see here that true worship is costly. There's a cost to it. Thirdly, we're going to see a contrast of humble worship, the humble worship of Christ, compared to or contrasted with the prideful worship of self. Or this world, we'll see. And then this final piece, and there is actually a fifth, because you're thinking, man, these last two are pretty depressing. Aren't you going to give me something better than that, preacher? Yes. The nature of the rebellious and unredeemed heart, we have to see that. And by the way, that's not other people, that's yours, and that's mine. Until it's redeemed, that's, that's ours. But there's a number five, I don't have it up here, but it's our reaction to this account. You and me. Right here, right now, how do we react to this account? Now last week, this is what we saw. Dual reactions to the miracle that we saw in the resurrection of Lazarus. This, this is more than dual. There's really almost like five or six reactions that we could kind of analyze about this particular miracle. And what we kind of see is this. Some believed, genuinely believed. Some believed. Others ran and tattled, <laughs> which you see that happening throughout the New Testament. And then the conclusion is that even a non-believer, to a non-believer, that Jesus was going to have to die. The the non-believer wanted him to die. The believer needed him to die. But that was that prophecy from a kind of an unwilling source in Caiaphas. So that's last week and what we saw. And if you recall, one of my big themes last week was the Pharisees were afraid of their, their nation and their place being taken away. And if you recall, that's kind of what we wanted to kind of focus on as it brings us into this, because now we're dealing with a whole new set of issues, even within believers, even within the apostles that are there. So turn, if you're not there yet, to chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. I'll read them through, and then we'll break them down. So be with me in John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray before we jump into this. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you and we glorify you. You alone are worthy of praise. You alone are the only mighty God. And we praise your name for that. We praise you because of all of the things that you've provided, but we praise you for the difficulties too. They draw us closer to you. They help us to understand that we are in dependence of you. They help us to refine uh, our, ourselves. The process of sanctification is at work when difficulty comes in our lives, and there are many here who are going through difficulties. But we praise you for those. We praise you because of salvation. We praise you because your Son came willingly, left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh, remained one with you, and yet willingly put his life on that cross and gave it up for us. We praise you because he didn't stay that way. Three days later, he rose again. We praise you because you allowed us to hear this and you moved in our hearts and by faith we believed and you've saved us and redeemed us and regenerated us. We praise you for all of these things and none of these things are of us. They are all of you. We praise you for your word as we study it today. We praise you for the lessons that we can learn from it. We praise you for the depth and the understanding that we can gain from it. We thank you for the wisdom that comes from above that you promised to give us if we believe and ask with faith. And if we open up the word and desire to learn and hear from it, we thank you for this Sunday, which we can gather together uh, in this country with freedom and worship you collectively. We thank you for all of these things, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we go forward, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, let's take a look at this in your Bibles. Let's look at these verses again. 1 through 2 say this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came, and it says, to Bethany. Now we'll talk about which Bethany here in a moment. We're going to get a qualification for the Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So a dinner honoring Christ. Now before we get into this dinner, let's talk about the Bethany. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to recall, have a recollection in your mind that we have dealt with another Bethany before. The Bethany we're talking about here is one that's just two miles from Jerusalem. Now, why is this significant? Why am I bringing this up? This miracle happened in very close proximity to Jerusalem. This event is well known in and around Jerusalem. And keep in mind what we just read. This was just six days before the Passover. So what does Josephus teach us from his, or enlighten us in? I don't know if he teaches us anything, but he enlightens us that during the Passover, he's recalling the, the amount of people that were in Jerusalem around Passover in 70 A.D. Uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed. He tells us that there were somewhere around 2 million Jews there. So I don't know if there's that many at this time, 70 years or 40 years earlier rather. I don't know if that many have arrived yet. It's six days before, but close to a million people. And you know that this story has been circulating. You know it's dangerous for Christ, and you know that he doesn't care that it's dangerous. 
he is jumping right into the fire. And so, as many will say, you know, he'll, he'll go away and, and, and get away from the people often. That does happen, and that's, that's true of him. Here he's not getting too far away. As a matter of fact, he's going right back to the scene of the crime, so to speak. He's going right back to where this event took place. He is all-knowing. He is our God. He's God incarnate. He's aware that the Pharisees want to kill him. He's been aware for a long time. And yet he goes right back there to where all of this takes place, just a few miles away from where his crucifixion will take place in, in about a week. He knows all of this is happening. He realizes this. The other Bethany is 25 miles away. So don't confuse those two. Those, uh, those are very different things. But don't get hung up with the Bethanies. There's all kinds of... In our country, we have, I think I saw something like 50 Springfields. You know, it, it's pretty common. Greenwood, there's many Greenwoods. Greenfields, there's many of those. By the way, my hometown, there aren't any other momentses in the world, which is kind of interesting. I don't know what that means. But anyway, on the side note there. So we see that it's a Bethany that's close, and that matters. So the location is Bethany. Now here's the next piece of this. It's in Bethany, we've got that, but it's not where you think it is. Now from John, we don't get this. I don't, you don't need to go there, but in Matthew 26, the parallel account, here's the bit of information we get there. It's Simon the leper's house, a neighbor probably of Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Now Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. They're probably friends of this man, but it's Simon the leper who's hosting this. Now what's fascinating about this is we've got to almost speculate because we don't have anything in God's word about Simon the leper other than this. Now, here's what I, I'm guessing, and I think it's a pretty good guess. He's healed of leprosy. Because if he weren't, they wouldn't let him in Bethany, and they wouldn't let him this close to Jerusalem at Passover. He's been healed by Jesus Christ, and he wants to hold an honoring dinner for him. And I'm guessing Lazarus is pretty thankful, too. However, however, if Lazarus knew anything about where he was and God allowed him to remember heaven, he probably isn't that thankful, but I don't think he would torture him in that, in that way. However, that's what we see here. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a dinner to, to celebrate Jesus, to, to give him a thanks. It, it's gratitude. It's fellowship, no doubt, but there's a few other things. I think it's also God's sovereign will and timing. It's a perfect piece of God's sovereign will and timing, and you're going to see this come out later and of course, as we started this morning, and in Dave's reading, how it concluded, the whole purpose is to give glory to the Lord. It's to glorify Him. It's to praise Him. And if, if you're wanting to know why you exist, it's for the same reason. Every time you get together with family at, at, during Easter or at, at, uh, at Christmas or Thanksgiving, you know what the purpose really is? It's, it's not just to get along with family better. It's to praise your God. It's to give him glory. It's to thank him. And I think that's what we're dealing with here too. So there's a variety of things going on as to why this dinner is taking place. But the primary reason is worship. That this is going to be an opportunity for them to worship the almighty God who is right there in front of them. And this is, this is a pretty incredible thing. And we're going to see this kind of play out as we go forward. Now, verse 3 of this, you can go back to John 12, or you probably haven't left it. John 12, 3 says this. It says, Mary took, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, or oil, yours may say, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I'm going to come back to that here in a moment. 
But let's just look at some of the details that I've highlighted here. A pound of expensive ointment. And, and it says that it was made of pure nard. Now here specifically it says that she anointed the feet of Jesus. And I want you to take note of something that I'm going to bring back around here in a moment. She wiped his feet with it, with her own hair. She wiped it off. Now We'll get to that in just a moment. The parallel passage from Matthew says this, similar. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came, we now know who this woman was, it's Mary, with an alabaster flask. That gives us a little extra detail. It's not just oil, it's not just expensive nard, but it's an alabaster flax. We'll talk about that in a moment with expensive ointment. And then she poured it on his head and it reclined at the table. So we got a little extra detail. Don't you just love the word of God, by the way? That we have not just one gospel, we have four. We don't just have one epistle, we have many. We have redundancy, we have fluidity in the Word of God. We have the Old and New Testament that fits together perfectly and we can get a full picture. That's why we want to teach the full counsel of God. So we get the full understanding. Just a, just a little side note of how beautiful the Word of God is and how fortunate we are to have that. And then we continue on. Mark's passage, Mark 14, he says this, just skipping on to what I've highlighted, very costly ointment, and it was expensive in the alabaster flask. It says she broke the flask. That's a little extra detail. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. And it tells us here it was worth 300 denarii. Now, let's just break some of this down for our, our, our own understanding. If we look at this and, and, and try to understand it and put it into perspective, here's what we see. This alabaster was an extremely expensive variety of marble only found in Egypt. Now, we think of that today, and we get things shipped, and, and, and it's not a big deal. But we kind of understood how big a deal it was during COVID, didn't we? I know Justin's not here this morning, but I remember him talking about, in his business, having all of this product just sitting in ports because they couldn't get it in because of COVID, and it really it impacted his industry and, and getting you know, pieces of equipment and gears and different things to John Deere and Cat and all of those. We kind of felt it, but back then, getting something from a faraway place to here costs a lot of money. And to have something so rare as that, very valuable. And she broke it. She broke it probably to, to make it faster because she wanted to worship immediately. That's probably what we see. The oil itself came from India, another faraway place, and very expensive. This is a year's wage. Now, that's 300 denarii to us. It, it doesn't matter, right? But just, I just looked this up this morning because I thought this would be interesting. And I was up at 4.30. I was telling the guys, I can't help it. I don't want to be up that early, but you know, your body starts teaching you to get up. In the, I, so I, I don't know how long this is going to go is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, it's had a little extra time this morning. But I looked up, Forbes did a study just this last year and just to kind of give you a typical idea, today, somebody who's between the ages of 33 and 45, why they picked that range, I don't know, makes an average of $55,000 a year. You think, ah, oh, that's not Israel. No, I want you to make it perspective for you. Imagine you, what, what the world would say, wasting $55,000 just to worship the Lord. Now, hopefully in your mind, you think, I'd give him all. I hope that's what you'd think. That, that's not a waste. And if you ever hear any Christian saying, I've wasted all this money on this ministry, I don't think you're talking to a Christian. I, I don't think they understand. Or if they are, they don't truly understand what they're talking about. There isn't amount of money, a, a single dollar, 
that isn't already his that I have. And if he wants it, he's going to have it. And I'm going to give it to him willingly. He cares about our hearts. But just to give you a perspective, $55,000 in a moment was gone. And that's just the ointment. The actual piece of, uh, of marble would have been even more expensive than that. We're, this could be $60,000 that she was just willing to give up for the sake of her Savior. found a great quote from a professor at Moody, and here's what he says about this. And this is kind of a neat transition because I, I told you to take note of the value, but also take note of the fact that she wiped his feet off. He says this, In typical Jewish burials, ointment masks the odor of de- decomposition. So anointing Jesus' feet, it prophesied Jesus' coming death. Since wiping off the ointment would never be done at an ordinary burial, this act may prophesy his rising incorrupt. Note, both the anointing and the wiping are intentionally mentioned by John. So when she's giving up this $60,000 worth of probably something that was precious to her, I, I don't know where she got it from. I don't know if she was wealthy. We don't know. But she maybe potentially, and, and certainly motivated by her love for Christ, she was willing to give that up knowing what maybe she was processing. Very few of them really understood what Christ was about to do. Even the apostles never really understood it. But whether this was prompted by the Lord, whether this was, and certainly it was divine, she was anointing him, but notice, wiping it off because it wasn't going to stay that way. Just think about that. If we consider the sacrifice that was made, the price that was paid, is there anything that you have in this world that you want to hold on to in exchange for what Christ did for you? Not me. And I don't think you either in your heart of hearts. I think that was her heart here. She maybe, maybe understood, this is my Savior. Mary certainly did. Mary, his mother, did. We know that in her prayer early in Luke 2, we, sh- we see that she knew her son was her Savior. She understood that. And I think Mary did here as well. So a beautiful thing that we see. Now I told you, it said the fragrance filled the room. I'm guessing maybe in your minds you're starting to write your own sermon here and you potentially might be thinking, wait a minute, I've heard that before about the gospel. And if you have, here's where it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let's read this together. You don't have to read it out loud, but I'll read it to you. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Let's just stop here. We have a contrast. It is an aroma. Aromas can be good and they can be bad. Now, what we see here in the example of Mary is it was beautiful. It filled the room. More specifically, I think that's imagery of how the the incredible, magnificent glory of Jesus filled the room. And the smell was just representative of it. But that's what the gospel is for people who are being saved. The glory of Jesus Christ just permeating through the room for them. But for those who are perishing, look at the contrast. To one, a fragrance from death to, de- to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. And I'm going to close with this today, by the way. Not this passage, but the commission. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. When you speak the truth in love, by the way, and sometimes that's not always easy. And you preach the gospel to people, you warn them of what they're doing and where they're going without Christ. And they believe on Christ because of the supernatural work that Christ is doing with them when they hear the gospel. It is a beautiful aroma from life to life. And you get to take part in that. 
you get to be part of that. You're commissioned by, that, by the Lord Almighty to do that. What a beautiful thing that is. Just an incredible thing that we see. But I want to see the heart of Mary here as well. If we think of Mary and Martha earlier in this story, let's not forget what Mary had done earlier. And I don't want to take the time to read this whole thing, but I put the context up here. You'll know this story. Mary and Martha, both Jesus, uh, both Mary and Martha are there, and they love Jesus, but you have Martha scurrying around trying to serve and, and work, and, and she's not worshiping. And you have Mary who's just at the feet of Christ. And notice what it says, verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? You remember this from earlier in the, in the ministry. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What's, what's the good portion? She's chosen to worship the Lord while he's there. She's, she's chosen to thank him. She's chosen to put him in his proper place. Now, is Jesus saying he doesn't want you to serve him? Of course not. We'll see this play out. But he wants primarily, first things first, is you put him as the top priority in your life. And if you do that, and I've got a great quote here for this, when you do that, then the service comes easy, and it comes better, and it comes pure. Because you're doing it from the right heart. Here's what Dr. Wood says about this. Is service to God wrong? Absolutely not. We're called to serve God, but our service to God is to emanate from the overflow that is created in our relationship with him. Listen to this carefully. It is so easy in the Christian life to be involved in Christianity and Christian service that in the process, we neglect the Christ that all of these things are supposed to be revolving around. Now, before I finish this quote, we just had a service fair out here. So I might be thinking like, are you countering what we just, no, no, no. I want you to sign up for as many of those things as you believe the Lord is leading you to. However, if you do this for eye service, you do this to check a box. You do this to have somebody pat you on the back. You're not going to do it well, and you just received your reward. And it's not going to have the eternal impact. But if you do this with the right heart, with the right mind, for the right reasons, for the right Lord, it's a whole different animal. Notice what it says next at the end of this quote. So the things that are supposed to be revolving around true worship is a reaction to the truth. The truth of who Christ is, what he accomplished, and the fact that he saved you in spite of the fact that you didn't deserve it, and you still don't. I like that. You still don't. To stay humble in what Christ has done for you and the idea of why you worship him, why you serve him. I think we see that out of Mary. Beautiful example of this. Here's the other thing we see from Mary. True worship is costly. It's very costly. When we consider what she's given, $60,000 plus, but also we're going to find out that she's lambasted by the apostles, that she is criticized, that she's put down, that she's going to have to step out and and she's going to have to be bold for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's costly in many ways. And it's not the first time we see this. As a matter of fact, we see an example from King David about this. I don't want to spend too much time on the context here, but just to give you an idea of what 2 Samuel chapter 24 is dealing with, this is a situation where David sinfully took a census of the people to find out how many fighting men he had. And you think, why is this sinful? Because he wasn't relying on the Lord and trusting him, and he wanted to see just how powerful his army was. Well, when that happened, God was not pleased. He was so displeased that he sent a plague. He actually gave David an option as to which plague, but 
The one that actually happened was a pestilence that killed 70,000 Israelites. And to stop this, God commanded David to build an altar and to, cre- and, and to offer a sacrifice, and he needed to do it at this Jebusite's home. And what we see in the context here is, a, is what happens when he's preparing to do this. Then Aranua said to David, let, me, let my lord, the king, take, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sludges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, uh, Arona, get, gives to the, to the king. And Arona said to the king, may the Lord your God accept it. This is all stuff that somebody else has given to David. The king said to Arona, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. What kind of sacrifice is that? So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. He, at a cost, wanted to worship the Lord. He understood, now this, if it's going to be true worship, if it's going to be true sacrifice, it's got to cost me something. There's got to be something involved in this. We learn that from David. We also learn it from the widow. You know this account from Luke 21. We see the rich giving of their abundance, and then we see this the, the apostles and Jesus observing this widow giving her last mite. Here's what it says. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. By the way, makes a loud noise when they clank it in there. And then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed of their abundance, no sacrifice. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. She gave of herself gave till it hurts essentially and was willing to trust the lord and we see this also in the lives of the macedonians and uh, we covered this a little bit when zach and i went through the book of philippians but you'll remember paul's encouragement to the corinthian church about what the churches in philippi and thessalonica and berea had done and here's what he says verse 2 for in severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Notice what motivated them. They wanted to do the will of the Lord and they loved the Lord and so they gave sacrificially. It's so easy to justify ourselves by giving of what's left. God wants your first fruits. He wants that of your money. It's not just a money issue. He wants that of your time. He wants that of your talents. He gifts you, each one of you as believers, to serve the people around you in the church. He wants you to give sacrificially. It's not always easy, but there's beauty in that, and that's what we see in this account. And God honors you when you do this. Now, it doesn't mean you're honored here on earth. It doesn't mean wealth, and it doesn't mean fame, and it doesn't mean acclaim. The world's not going to praise you, but the Lord notices, and he cares about this. And in the Matthew account from this same situation, look at what it says about Mary and what she did. I think this is beautiful. This is not in John, but Matthew gives us this insight. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We're doing that right now, aren't we? We're talking about what Mary did and the lesson she's giving us of how to worship from a pure heart because she loves the Lord. She knows he's the Savior and he's going to sacrifice 
and she gives of himself. Warren Wiersbe has a great quote on this. He says this, It would have required a year's wages from a common laborer to purchase this ointment. Like David, Mary would not give to the Lord that which cost her nothing. Her beautiful act of worship brought a fragrance to the very house in which they were dining. And the blessing of her deed has spread around the world. Little did Mary realize that that night that her love for Christ would be a blessing to believers around the world for centuries to come. And a lesson and and an example for us, I would say, for years to come. Here we sit, years to come, and we're in those years now learning from her. Moving on, chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, turn there. I'll bring it up on the screen. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds like he's really trying to do business, right? Let's get to the business of handling the poor. John gives us the insight that's not what was going on. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Clearly, clearly calls him a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So what did he struggle with? Well, Paul gives us an idea of the human heart. It's not just Judas who struggles with this. And it isn't just... It isn't just a non-believer that would struggle with this. The love of money can corrupt all of us. Even as a believer, you've got to be careful about this. Paul, writing to Timothy, writing to a believer who's a leader of men, who is then leading other men to essentially buy in and live by these same standards, and this theology says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Boy, Judas lived that out. For the love of money is a root. It's not the root, but it's a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Those who weren't really in Christ, but they thought they were, we'll get to that in a moment, and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is not an uncommon thing then, and it's not an uncommon thing now. And money can be a real problem for anyone who desires to be rich. And I I had one of my... uh, coaching friends who he asked me a lot of questions about God's word and he's he's continuing to learn and he occasionally watches these sermons so he'll know I'm talking about him um, he asked me a question about you know blessings from the Lord this week and I, I directed him to Philippians 1 where we have this very famous passage where we where Paul tells us that it's a gift almost a gift of grace it's the same word for grace that we have been given the opportunity to suffer for him. That that's one of the blessings that we get. God doesn't deal in the economy of the world where he sees money and fame and fortune and power and, and prestige. He doesn't see that as, a, as an important thing. Why would he? It's temporary. Our God deals in other blessings. He's going to give you difficulties. He's going to give you things that, that are blessings from an eternal perspective, things that are opportunities to proclaim the gospel. He deals in a different economy of blessing. But that's what we see here. We're going to pierce ourselves with many pangs if we go down this road. Judas had heard this before. You know the parable of the sower. What does it say? As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Judas heard it. He was around Jesus for three years, saw miracles, heard his teaching, heard the gospel, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. That's what it was. Choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's exactly what we see out of his life. And we see that out of others. You might say, well... Yeah, that's old Judas. Mm. Matthew tells us it wasn't just Judas. Look at this. Matthew 26, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Now, John lets us know who was the leader of that indignation, but all of them were like, what are you doing? That's a lot of money. 
They still had their heads in the world. They had their heads in this spot, in this place, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. There's an application here for us. The apostles are believers. You're going to interact with them in heaven. You'll be able to talk to them about this. And they'll be able to talk to you about your life too, by the way. Don't just hammer Peter and say, boy, what were you thinking? When you start telling them your life, he'll think, what were you thinking? You had more information than I had. But when we look at this, this is, an, this is a believer that struggles. And that's what we are. We, so, we sometimes can let stuff, things, get in the way of our worship of the Lord. And Christ has a reaction to this. 12, 7 through 8. Let's take a look at this as we go through this. Jesus said, leave her alone. He saw, what she, she, he saw the heart. He saw what she was doing. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He's even referencing that this is a prophetic moment for what's going to happen. For the poor you will always have with you, but you don't always have me. They didn't understand this, of course, that this was, this was a temporary thing, that Christ would physically be bodily here on earth. But you think about this particular passage. Is Christ saying he doesn't care about the poor? Of course, that's not what we see. You see my statement here. Christ is simply implying that worship of him is the top priority. That's got to be the thing that trickles down, as we saw from earlier from Dr. Woods. In any believer's life, that sort of, this sort of worship will then spur the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will want to work through you because your heart will be in the right place and you'll be broken, contrite, ready to serve, ready to work, ready to be a slave for Christ and giving to the poor. But it all starts with keeping Christ at the top. That's where it all starts. So no, he's not disparaging this at all. And if we think about Matthew 25, turn there very quickly. I just want to reference this for a second. And then we'll come back to John 12. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is Jesus referencing the true believer during the tribulation period. And we know what Christ says of this tribulation period in Matthew 24. It's the worst time in human history. And if he didn't cut it short, this future time of tribulation, there wouldn't be any human flesh alive. But there will be people who put their faith in Christ and their treatment of the people around them, specifically the Jewish people who, are, who will be absolutely attacked and abused during this time period, he puts a premium on how they act. It is, a, it is a reflection of the true believer. Now, don't read this and say, this is earning salvation. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's right on our wall. That comes from Scripture. However, if you're truly in Christ, this is what you'll act like. Even during the tribulation period, believers will act this way. Take a look at this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom and prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are believers that put their faith in Christ. Well, what do they look like? I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Jesus will answer, say to them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these my brothers, probably the Jewish people, but we can apply this beyond that, you did it for me. So does Jesus care about how you treat other people, the poor, the needy, the sick, the hurt? The afflicted, those who are abused and persecuted, yes, he does care. But it is a reflection, it is an outpouring of what Christ has done in your life. It starts with worshiping him purely. Your reaction to the truth will lead you to this. So yes, Christ has something to say about this. Very clearly, 
He wants you to serve other people, but that comes from your relationship with him. Now let's move on. Let's finish this and land this plane. Verses 9 through 11, back to John. John 12, 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, I'll bet, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see my title here. I know, here's the plan, let's kill Lazarus again. So he won't talk anymore. It's kind of funny, but that's how men work. Here's what we can control. We'll just kill him again. I'll just keep killing him until he can't talk anymore. And by the way, that's how modern persecution works too. They say that uh, there are more people dying for the name of Jesus today than ever before, simply because of the, the sheer numbers, 8 billion people on planet Earth, that there are people dying for the name of Jesus Christ right now, and one dying doesn't stop the message. Right, The gospel keeps getting promoted and, and preached, and so they just keep killing Christians, and that's not going to stop. So the heart of man is, is on display here. You're not listening. You're not stopping. So we're just going to keep killing you, and that's what they do here. They don't want him to profane. I would guess Lazarus is telling everybody what happened, just like every Christian should, right? What did Jesus do for you? And, and you, it just oozes out of you because you love him, because your top priority is Christ, and you're like Mary, and you... And, and people want to shut you up eventually. That's what we see here. So I think that's what's going on here. But here's another thing we see. It says a large crowd of the Jews, verse 9. We know this from John eleven fifty five from last week. The Passover was, of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So how many of that two million are here? Well, that remember what I said earlier. That's circulating. There are a lot of people. Some speculate that when this large crowd, this could be thousands of people. It's not unheard of for Christ to have thousands of people clamoring to see him. Not that long ago, we spoke of the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like 10, 15, 20,000. Now, his fame has, has gotten to an even higher apex, and there are more Jews there. This could be tens of thousands of people who want to hear this, see this, and talk to Christ. And, and of course, the leadership of Israel knows this as well. This is a very big deal that's going on. And here's what makes it even more impressive. I want you to notice something. It says here specifically, if we look back at this particular passage, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, it says. So let me break this down for a second. What does this going away and believing in Jesus really mean? Well, if you look at this, it tells us in John eleven forty five, many of the Jews, the leadership, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. They had gone and told some of them, but some of them believed in him. This going away is very reminiscent of repentance. And what is this particular Jewish phrase, going away, really means? It means you're doing this, and now you're doing this. They never return to the Pharisee version of false religion, to the Sadducee version of false religion. They turn their backs from it, and there's a change in that person's life. That's what they're afraid of. Because their man-made religion, their place, their nation, last week, that's getting attacked. And this is a real big issue. And if you're dealing with thousands, potentially thousands of people going through this right here, they're tr turning towards true faith in Christ, that phrase means a little bit more, doesn't it? And when you preach the gospel, by the way, the same thing's going to happen. I, I, I wish to say that it will be thousands of people when you proclaim the name of Christ. It may not be. It may be a couple. 
Maybe a few. You, many of you know I've been teaching Bible for 20-some years to teenagers. I'd love to tell you that every single senior class that graduates, it's 100% conversion. That's not the case. Usually it's just a few who are true believers. But the true believers are there. The true believers are right there. And when we think about that, that the true believer, God knows them. They're his children. They need to hear the gospel and they, God wants you to share it with them. What an opportunity that we have. We'll, we'll bring that back around. But what's the problem? What's the hang-up? What's the hang-up for men now and then? The hang-up is them. It's their own pride. It's their own issues. And it's this world. When we think of these men, verses 9 through 11, when we look at this and we go back to what their problem was, these Jewish leaders, what was their issue? Their issue was this world. The world they'd created, the world they were living in, and what they cared about. Jesus has a little something to say about this. John has a little something to say about this. And the Apostle Paul has a little something to say about this. Seems like there's something we need to pay attention to, a little something we need to pay attention to about this. Here's what Jesus says about man's hang-up, this world. Matthew 16 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If any one of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For, so it seems as Christ thinks that there's an, a premium on giving all for him. And he tells us to do this daily, as we see a parallel passage telling us, daily we take up our cross and follow him. That this is something we need to do each day. That the, the, the problem we have is the temptations of the world. These things that tantalize, that, that, that we want to pursue, that I'd love to tell you that when you're saved, you don't have a sin nature anymore, but I'd be lying to you. You're going to have to continue to fight that fight until the Lord takes you home. And thanks be to God, there will be a day where that takes place. Maybe today. One of the greatest things, I've said this before from this pulpit, one of the greatest things about the rapture of the church will not just be my new body, and I won't be 50 anymore. It won't be new shoulders, new knees, new you know, ankles, and whatever else is not working out so great for me anymore, and you can all say the same. But it's that sin nature is going to be gone. And that fight will be over. And I will be made new spiritually, and I won't see that sin again, and you won't either. What a beautiful thing. So the hang-up is this world. We see that. Jesus knows, but Paul knows it too. 2 Timothy 4, he has something to say about it. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. This is Paul's last letter. He's writing it to Timothy. There was a man named Demas who was apparently a follower of Christ or one of those who we thought was, and he departed because he was in love with this world. He had a taste of what Christ offered. He saw it. He saw the life of Paul lived out, but it wasn't appealing to him. The world was. What's man's hang-up? This world. By the, world. by the way, this world is a lot of things. It could be money. It could be fame. It, it, it could be your happiness, your pursuits, your hobbies. It could be your family even that's in the way of you worshiping the Lord and following him. I don't know what the part of this world that is holding you up. Maybe it's your position. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's your stuff. I don't know. But Demas had something that was holding him back from true worship, true surrender, not a true believer. And John has a little something to say about this. First John 2, he tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of the God abides forever. And we think about the stuff of this world. Pastor, you shared something with us this morning, and I don't know if you want me to share it or not, but I'm going to, so you can yell at me later. But I put it in here. I quick jotted it in because I thought, this is perfect. He said one of his greatest pet peeves is when kids, he didn't say his kids. Sorry, Isaiah, it's not, and nor it's not, not you. He didn't specifically say you. He says he hates it when kids write on their parents' stuff while they're still alive, save this for me when you die. He's not saying his kids did that, so I'm just saying, he, he's a pet peeve of his. And what, what was the, what's the sentiment behind that? The idea that that stuff really matters is not Christ-like. It's not Christ-centered. It's not what Christ calls us to. And some of you are saying, well, I did write something on my mom's dishes because I didn't want my sister. I'm not telling you that that's a wrong thing. Those should be your dishes. If they were your dishes, put your name on it. I'm not, pastor's not telling you that you're condemned for that. I'm, but I, I just got a you know, personal story to tell you. My parents, all of you know this, most of you know this, my parents have both passed away in the last six or seven years. And we have a house that they lived in that's like a museum. There's just stuff in there. Stuff. It's just stuff. Did they, did they worship their stuff? No, they're, they're in glory. They put their faith in Christ because by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, by the blood of Jesus alone, they were saved. They didn't take any of it with them. There was no U-Haul that we were carrying behind the hearse during their sermons or during their, their, uh, their funerals. That didn't happen. Okay? But their stuff's still there. It's a great reminder of how temporary this stuff is and how eternal relationship with Christ is. Don't love this world. Don't love it. Don't love what's here. Don't let this hang you up. This is what the problem of the Pharisees was. And don't just say it's the Pharisees. Don't get into that habit. Us versus them. You read the Scriptures with yourself in mind. You hear sermons like this or any other with yourself in mind. It's never, honey, listen to this. You need this. Or, boy, I wish Bob were here. He... No, it's you and it's me. It's even more so me because I have to tell you this. The Lord has put it on me to tell you this. It's really convicting. So this seems like, wow, this is super depressing. This is how we're ending? No, it's not how we're ending. So should we just give up? I mean, is there just no hope? I mean, man is wicked and it's evil and the reactions to Christ's incredible miracle and the Lazarus resurrection and what he's about to do. And so many didn't believe these thousands of people should we just lose heart? No, we shouldn't just lose heart. Look at what MacArthur says about this. You have this service of love of Mary and Martha. You have the selfish sin and apostasy of Judas. You have the indifference of the crowd that ends up shouting, crucify him. You have the hatred of the false leaders of Israel threatened by the truth who end up executing Jesus. But that's not the end. The end is you have people believing in Jesus, and that's how it is in the kingdom, isn't it? I love this. There are the people who love him, who hate him, who are indifferent to him, who want to destroy him, everything about him. Against all that, you have the people believing in him. There's always a remnant who believe. That can be lost in this story. It really can. That's why we preach. That's why we're still on this planet to fulfill the Great Commission. I told you at the beginning, I, I was going to bring this back around. It's, the great, it, it's, always, it's always the Great Commission. This is what you were put here for. You were saved, no doubt about it, to save you from the wrath of God. No question. 
He loves you that much, but it isn't because you're worthy of it, because he's worthy of it. And now he's given you a commission. He's decided, and and I never can understand why he's decided to do this with me. I I just don't get it, because I don't understand why he's ever used me, but he's chosen to, and he's chosen you to do this, to make his plea through you. What he did to you and what he's going to do to you, he wants you to share with other people. And he doesn't want you to lose heart. Here's what Paul says to this, and we'll, we'll end with this. And, and I, just, I just love this because you read a story like this, you see accounts like this, you see the, the world around you that is so much like this, and then this can be real encouragement to us. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, you, you do, believer, you have this, we don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Let me just stop there for a minute. We don't change the word of God. It doesn't need to be changed. Oh, there's a sinful world out here that's going to reject Christ over and over for all the reasons we've discussed today and more. It isn't the gospel that's the problem. It's, the, it's man's wicked, deceitful, selfish, arrogant, egotistical heart it was yours too. The power of God can change hearts and does. If that weren't the case, this place would be empty. Okay? So we don't lose heart. We've got a God who can save, and we don't tamper with the Word. We leave it pure, and we give it pure with love, respect, grace, mercy. But, be, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's veiled. If it's veiled to those who are perishing... In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Have we not seen that in this account in the last several weeks? The image of God, the glory of God, lived out in Christ. He is the embodiment of God himself. He is God incarnate, lived out. That's our story. We know who he is. He's our God. He's our Savior. For what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, don't lose heart. The God we just discussed, he's your God. The Savior that raised Lazarus will raise you. The, the Savior that changed the world 2,000 years ago and put Jerusalem on its ear is your personal Lord and Savior, Christian. And you get to tell this story to the people around you. What an honor. What an incredible thing. This isn't a depressing story. It's an encouragement. Don't lose heart. And for you in here who still haven't put your faith in Christ, I'm going to plead with you one more time. This Savior of ours, oh, he's real, and he's coming back. And he's coming back this next time not to die for sins, not to grant mercy, not not to show grace. He's coming back with wrath. And I say that with love. He's coming back to show who, what a king really looks like. And when he comes back, he's going to know what your heart is, and he's going to know who you are, and he knows who his children are, and he knows them well. He knows you by name. And if you haven't put your faith in him, if he doesn't know you and you don't know him, today's your day. The Holy Spirit's stirring in you. You've heard the gospel, and by grace, through faith in Jesus, if you repent and believe on him and him alone, and the, the complete and utter perfect blood of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, you too can be saved. 
And then you go and you tell that to the world. It's a beautiful thing. And this could be your day. If that's the case, we want to we know about it. We want to be part of that blessing. Tell us about it. We would be encouraged. And what a day that will be for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you for the encouragement of this account. We thank you for the challenges of this account. I pray that we not fall prey to some of these same temptations that the apostles fell. The idea of putting stuff and things in service in the way of our worship of you. We thank you for the example of Mary and her willingness to give of herself, to give it a cost, to love you and to worship you. I pray that we worship that way too. And when we don't, we confess it. And we don't always. We confess it. We repent of that. We know that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know John wrote that to us as believers. So I pray for that today. I pray for any soul here who has put their faith in you, that those of us around here who have already been in Christ, who already are in your Son, can encourage them, build them up, disciple them, that they can be encouraged and have hope and have this this incredible encouragement that death is not death, as we sang earlier. We thank you for the incredible gospel. We thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.